You are who you are partly because of the genes your parents gave you. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Partly because of the environment that you grew up From in. our studios in Malibu, California. But you're mostly the result of your own choices. Hey. Mark, how are you? Oh, hey, Brad, it's you. What's up? Yes. It's time for another Primal Blueprint podcast, and we have a wonderful topic today to discuss that's been uh, inspired by many, many questions, both written and spoken on SpeakPipe, seem to have uh, a, a common recurring theme that's struggling with losing those last five or ten pounds of excess body fat. And I know you've talked about this topic in detail and conveyed in your books that it's as easy as following the primal blueprint carbohydrate curve and getting those carbs under 100 grams, but sometimes there's a lot of nuances to address, and I'd like to get into, well, a pretty extensive list of those that you covered in a wonderful Mark's Daily Apple post called 17 Reasons You're Not Losing Excess Body Fat. We won't go step-by-step through those. You can go read the post for that, but I think we have some uh, important things to discuss that might not be uh, fully respected or even uh, considered by people who are struggling out there. Well, yeah, the original uh, premise of the Primal Blueprint was we do this for health, first and foremost. And looking good naked is a nice side effect. Well, what happens uh, quite quickly is people start to see how much weight they're losing and they think, wow, this is crazy. I'm, I'm losing this body fat. My, my genes fit better, looser. Uh, you know, I'm getting sick less often. I'm, th- this is awesome. What do I have to do to, uh, to get to be uh, a cover model for men's fitness or Victoria's Secret catalog? Uh, and a lot of people get frustrated because they do uh, experience some of these significant changes in body fat, but then they hit a plateau. And what I wanted to sort of uh, point out is that the template that we offered for achieving good health We have to tinker at the margins. We have to kind of figure out, okay, what do we need to do in your case to get you to break, to bust through that plateau? Now that you've you've done most things right, but in your case, as this experiment of one progresses, what do we need to do to get you to the next level? One of them is we've seen the carbohydrate curve. We know that getting under 100 grams a day is where the fat, fat burning beast is going to kick in and perhaps people are misinformed or a little unsure of their actual carb count. That's um, definitely an issue for a lot of people is some assumption that what they're eating is fitting within the, the confines of that carb curve. And, uh, and then they find out later on if they really start to take pictures of the food and, and, and log it later or do a, a total recall of all of the uh, things they ate for the day – they start to realize that, whoops, my carb count wasn't the 75 grams that I thought it was, but was more like 130 or 135. This has also to do with the portion sizes that are typically listed on a, on a piece of packaged food. Uh, sometimes you miss the fact that um, that small bag of, of almonds, it's, it, maybe it's already three servings, and that's what they're giving you is a, is a uh, nutrient profile breakdown for three servings, and yet you're assuming it's just for one serving. Uh, right, excuse yeah. me, or they're giving it to you for one serving, and you're there are three servings in there, and you're eating all three, assuming it's one serving. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's just it's just really a, attention to detail, and that's where the experiment of one, the 90 day logbook that we created, the 90 day journal, uh, uh, was so helpful for a lot of people. Is once you really start to record this stuff over time, you need to record it in order to develop the intuitive skill 
for the rest of your life to be able to to not record it and to be able to understand exactly what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Right, and the online food logs are great too for that, like paleotrack.com, fitday.com. And um, Dr. Kate Shanahan, Primal Advantage, is actually including a week-long food diary as part of her protocol for her clients. So by the time you're finished writing down everything you consume for a week, you're going to have a really good knowledge of where you're falling on the carb curve and where you're leaking things out. Yeah, and as I said, if, if you, th- my intention is for everybody to get to the point where you don't have to think about what you're eating and, and how much of it that you're eating. But in order to get to that point, you still have to have a baseline. You still have to understand where you are now and to be able to examine all of those areas of what you're taking in now and, and critically to look at, well, maybe I am taking in uh, too many carbs or maybe I'm simply just taking in way too many calories for a person who is attempting to lose weight. Right. Another one on the list that's kind of hindering the fat reduction goals is overly stressful lifestyle or chronic overproduction of cortisol. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, ubiquitous in today's society. So um, not to give everybody an excuse, but it, it, it is something that I want everyone to take a look at and, and understand that constant layering of stress upon one's own life, whether it's uh, self-judgment because of your inability to lose weight, whether it's uh, an overbearing, you know, boss at work or overdue bills or, you know, just just a normal day-to-day inability to to enjoy life and, and extract moments of fun out of life. Those are all stressful uh, points that add up to an increase in the secretion of cortisol, which uh, does not really help your your fat loss endeavors. Cortisol is more responsible for people maintaining belly fat. And uh, to the extent that you can reduce that amount of stress, that will also help your efforts. So when you're pumping out too much cortisol, what happens with your appetite and your fat metabolism versus carb needs? Well, uh, cortisol is a... um, it's a gluconeogenic hormone, so it's it's hoping to produce more glucose. And it it one of the devastating effects of cortisol is it is it causes the breakdown of muscle tissue, so that a few me- amino acids can be sent to the liver to be converted into glucose to fuel the brain, because the brain thinks that you're in a a life threatening survival situation. So may, there are many other aspects of it that are devastating to health in the long term. Obviously, cortisol is necessary for short-term survival in a true life-or-death situation, but the chronic secretion of cortisol decreases the uptake of calcium by bones, for instance. So people who are um, under a lot of stress have low bone density because they're unable to take calcium and boron and some of the other minerals and uh, some of the other cofactors involved in in, uh, building bone and take them in and use them to create bone density or add mass to the bones. So you have this, uh, the brittle bones that occur quite frequently in, in people who are under a lot of stress and who aren't eating right uh, and who aren't doing weight-bearing activities, for instance. Cortisol is also an immune suppressor. The idea behind that is that I think evolution said, look, why should I waste valuable resources trying to identify something that might kill me in, in two weeks or two years i.e. A, a bug or a virus, when I might not live the next two hours. So uh, it diverts resources away from the immune system to handle what it perceives as, a, as an immediate life-threatening situation. But chronic cortisol secretion is not an immediate thing. It's something that 
that uh, we create either through this layering of stress that we've imposed upon ourselves or through choosing to exercise too much or to burn the candle at both ends and not get enough sleep. There are, there are all sorts of ways in which we can, we can cause the adrenals to over-secrete cortisol and in that regard hinder our uh, efforts to achieve better health and an ideal body composition. So moderating stress levels, eating a primal aligned diet with eliminating those excess carbs, then you have your appetite stability, your energy stable, and life becomes less stressful. So it's a, it's a sort of a positive feedback loop there, huh? Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're not going to still suffer from the self-imposed mental stress if you're a person who's, who's prone to doing that. And there are strategies for that. I mean, uh, uh, meditation or prayer or taking a walk early in the morning or doing a gratitude exercise like this is one of the things I do every day. Um, I've created some supplements there. I have a supplement called Primal Calm, C-A-L-M. Just it provides nutrients that help your body better deal with the types of stress that you bring on yourself, the anxiety and, and the stress level. So there are a lot of ways to go about trying to reduce the stress. Certainly getting the diet dialed in and the sleep are critical to it but they may not be enough. Oh, sorry to jump in here with a with a commercial, but that Primal Calm, I think it might be interesting to many listeners how that works and how it might help. I know I've taken it for many, many years on a sporadic basis when I really needed it, when life was really stressful and I was in a, uh, a fight-or-flight state for a prolonged period, such as with jet travel. Yeah, I mean, um, it's an elegant little formula that I designed for myself years ago because I recognized that I don't deal with stress very well myself. Um, and I also recognized how uh, devastating high levels of stress and cortisol can be over a lifetime. So I wanted something that would, you know, kind of give my body the tools to help it better deal with stress. So it's got phosphatidylserine, which is one of my favorite nutrient supplements. It's a molecule that's sort of a uh, a phospholipid that a functioning molecule on the exterior of most cell membranes, but particularly prevalent on uh, brain and nerve cell membranes. We don't manufacture much of it by ourselves. We don't get much of it in our diet, and we tend to lose it over uh, over a lifetime. So it makes sense, I think, to supplement with that uh, to help protect the way the nerve cells function. So I've got uh, phosphatidylserine in there. Also, early on in the in my days of exploring performance-enhancing supplements, uh, I came across a series of studies by a guy by the name of Monteleone that looked at how supplementing with phosphatidylserine lowered the amount of cortisol secreted in response to stress. And they, they, the, the experiments looked at doing consecutive leg days. So they took these weightlifters who normally would do legs maybe once a week, at most twice a week, because, because if you do a real serious leg day, with, with heavy, heavy squats and presses and, and all of the other leg exercises, it's, it's so difficult and so taxing that you, you can't really repeat the performance within 72 hours. So they made these guys do them uh, two or three days in a row with the intent of increasing the amount of cortisol secreted, i.e. the stress hormone, because they were doing these stressful workouts one day after another. And the phosphatidylserine was demonstrably lowering the amount of cortisol secreted in response to the stress. It also sort of, it's kind of funny because it also was one of the first indicators that, wow, I mean, if these guys in the lab are doing consecutive hard days as their number one choice of, of creating uh, a burst of cortisol 
from the adrenals as a result of stress, then maybe I, as an endurance athlete, shouldn't be doing consecutive hard days on the track or on the roads. So it all sort of linked together that way. And just to sort of uh, carry on with what's in Prolofton, um, L-theanine, which is a uh, amino acid that's uh, known to um, to have an effect on uh, calming the brain. It's in a lot of teas and you know, sort of the green the, that that whole genre of people that will drink uh, tea containing high amounts of L-theanine for its for its calming effect. Uh, rhodiola rosia, which is an adaptogenic herb, it's got uh, uh, magnolia bark. Again, it's known as an, what we call an anxiolytic. It, it reduces anxiety. So these are all very safe natural substances that I put together in this primal calm. Um, and again, I, I designed this product for myself first and foremost, and then you know a couple of thousand of my friends. So when I tell people to try it, I say, try, try several, uh, you know, hit it pretty hard for a few days when you need it or when you're stressed out to really notice that effect of kind of a calming effect. And unlike the, the hype supplements where my energy is higher than ever before, I, I can go all day. This is sort of the opposite where your, your desired effect is just to feel calmer and mellower rather than amped and jittery during stressful periods of your life. Exactly. And yet it doesn't contain, you know, St. John's Ward or Kava Kava or any of the the herbal remedies that are known to cause you to want to go to sleep, for instance. Um, so it's not it, do, it really doesn't have any sort of a noticeable effect on the body. As I say, it just these are these are substances that have been shown in the research to help you better deal with the anxiety or stress that you produce on a day to day basis. Great. So if you're not losing the body fat you want, you're trying to get those last five to ten off, make sure your carb count is uh, under control during this this aggressive period of fat reduction. Mellow out the stress levels in your life. And also notice one other reason you're stepping on the scale, you're not losing weight, is you might be adding muscle mass. Yeah, which is a good thing. So when, when you use the scale by itself as your indicator of whether or not you're succeeding in your weight loss goals, understand that if you're doing this right, you are burning off fat and you are trending toward your ideal body composition, which may mean you, you need more muscle. Maybe you're skinny fat. Maybe you're a person who doesn't have as much lean body mass, uh, i.e. muscle, as you ought to for your size. And as you start to eat primal and start to do the workouts, you increase the muscle that you have while you're burning off the fat. And that's a good thing. And it's a good thing for women as well as men. And a lot of women will say, well, wait a minute. I don't want to get big. You're not going to get big. Women, it's impossible for women who are, you know, not on some, you know, massive bodybuilding steroid experiment to get big. What they do is they get toned and they get lean and they, and the muscles start to show up and you start to see those the little biceps that are so awesome in the toned women. It's the Terminator effect, you know, with uh, Linda Hamilton, which everybody wanted her uh, her muscles at one time and she wasn't even that muscular, but it just it was just that little bit that showed up that was that was um, you know attractive and functional and very strong same thing happens with deltoids if you're a, a woman who um, has had issues with your body shape and maybe you're pear shaped one of the first things you can you can do to change your ratio is to increase the size of your deltoids those muscles at the upper part of your arm uh, your shoulder muscles lots of little tricks like that but they all sort of involve achieving an ideal amount of muscle for you. And the amount of muscle that is available to you is determined by your 
family genetics and it's not going to continue to grow. It's going to stop at some point and you won't put any more muscle mass on and you'll be at your ideal amount of muscle mass and you'll continue to burn fat until you get to your ideal body composition in terms of lowered body fat. And that's really the what we're, what we're shooting for on the primal blueprint is this trending toward the ideal body composition. Great. Uh, next on the list, and, and we've already talked about the excess cortisol, the prolonged stress pattern, uh, but I want the serious fitness enthusiast to take special attention to this one, chronic cardio, because there's so many people that are stuck in that mindset of looking at their body fat level, their body composition, and saying, if I can just add a few more hours per week or a few more miles to my totals, that is the secret to getting that final five pounds off. And so when you're into locked into that chronic pattern, what really happens to your body fat reduction goals? What often happens is um, the body rebels, and the body says, you're, you're putting me through a lot of uh, stress, and as I mentioned in the earlier piece about the uh, phosphatidylserine and the Monteleone studies, um, the body doesn't like to have repeated amounts of physical stress layered on it day after day. You've got to give the body a chance to recover. The whole reason that we train theoretically is to get stronger. And, and the only way we can get stronger is by building our bodies back up by rest, recovery, and nutrition after a hard workout. So to think that by going day in and day out and continuously burning calories and going hard because we're going to burn off our stored body fat, the brain, which we talked about in an, in an earlier podcast, has this it's, – it's, it's what we call the central governor and it, and, it, and it understands what's going on and from a survival point of view says, wait a minute. If this clown is going to try this again tomorrow, I'm going to eat more tonight. And so there's a – there becomes this repetitive kind of – you go to the gym, you try to you work hard, you burn four, five, six hundred calories, you get home, you're hungry, you're starved. The body says, look, we're going to uh, replace those burned calories and it's got to be carbohydrates because you exhausted our, our glycogen reserves. You, you haven't learned how to burn fat yet appropriately and what you've done is burned off all the glycogen. Now we're going to try and replace that and there's a tendency to overeat. So there's, a, there's this part of the brain that says if there's food available, I'm going to eat more than I need to to overcompensate for the loss of calories today. And over time, what we see, and, and Brad, you and I have noticed this so much that we're actually you know, finishing up a book on primal endurance because we noticed years ago that there would be people at the starting line of an Ironman triathlon or, or a marathon who had 10 or 15 or 20 pounds they're carrying that they ought not to be carrying theoretically given the 50, 60, or 80 miles a week that they're running or the 150 miles a week that they're riding. So that, so long, long-winded long answer here, but the bottom line is your weight loss and your fat loss goals have as much to do with your strategic selection of exercise days and the types of exercise uh, as it does with the calorie count and the macronutrient profile. And most people would be blown away by how little exercise they probably need to do at least time-wise in order to achieve that ideal body composition. And they'd, and they'd be further blown away and probably frustrated as so many people are uh, when they recognize that they've all – one of the reasons that they're carrying 10 or 15 pounds of, of extra body fat is because they're exercising too much. Hard to believe. And uh, if you want to discount Mark's answer there, 
and continuing pounding out the miles and then doing battle on the appetite front, good luck. And I will say that emphatically because when you're in that chronic pattern and training super hard, as you mentioned that we both know we've been there, um, you can just simply not ignore that ravenous appetite, especially for carbs. That's your brain telling you that you're in this stressful pattern and and fighting hard and fighting a losing battle to stop eating uh, all night after your hard day of training. Speaking of losing, the best example I can think of this is The Biggest Loser, the TV show, where you have a collection of people who are who are morbidly obese, who are put on a regimen of 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day, and then encouraged to burn up to 6,000 calories a day during exercise. And in the short term, in the few months that they're on the ranch uh, or on the show, they show some pretty impressive losses of actual weight. They're doing a lot of work. They're burning a lot of calories. But invariably, the saddest part of the show is how, how many, and it's virtually all of them, gain back some of the weight. Uh, most of them gain back all of the weight that they lost. <laughs> the saddest part of the show is not on the show because we don't see those people when they're home exhausted and eating like crazy. Right. It's just, and the, and the point is, while the, you can convince the brain to not eat very many calories while you're burning off 6,000 calories a day of exercise for a limited amount of time, if you have somebody like Jillian yelling in your face the entire time, and if you're willing to throw up and pass out and faint and do all the things that happen on the show, you will get that short-term result. But because it is so unsustainable for a lifetime, you wind up damaging the body, and, and this is one of my Again, I have a lot of complaints about the show, but one of them is, is a lot of people are doing damage to their bodies by undergoing this dramatic uh, caloric restriction. It's basically an anorexic way of losing weight because they're cutting – they're exercising off calories and they're, and they're restricting their calorie intake. It's not sustainable. They gain it, they gain it all back and it's really quite a sad uh, epilogue, if you will, to most of these uh, uh, seasons. Other than that, uh, no disrespect to the great show. <laughs> Just kidding. No, um, no, no, no. I'm, you know, and several of the people who've been on the show have become very good friends of mine, and they will agree with me. So it's not like this is uh, unknown. And I've gotten to know a couple of the contestants quite well. They're uh, in their second phase of uh, life transition and doing primal and doing quite well with the primal thing. But uh, you know, have come to the primal because that strategy of the Biggest Loser did not work for them after the show. Uh, the next one I know is your pet project right now. So you're you're deep into this issue and working on some solutions, and that's insufficient general everyday movement. Yeah, it's kind of weird that um, you know as we looked at the ten primal blueprint laws and recognized that what we were trying to do was just identify behaviors that were that have been common to all humans for the first two and a half million years of evolution. Uh, lots of movement throughout the day was one of those, and it wasn't about lacing on the shoes and going up and running, uh, you know, ten miles or fifteen miles, or or going to the gym and doing a treadmill workout or doing or or even lifting. It was simply that every one of our ancestors didn't have a sofa to sit on, didn't have a, a cushy office chair to lean back in or swivel on, either had to walk or or squat pretty much all day long, and and it was this constant movement. Uh, walking, crawling, climbing, uh, carrying things that not only helped you know rev the body's metabolism up and prompt 
the different muscles to grow, but prompted them to grow in a balanced fashion so that you're, you know, when you sit at a desk all day long, not only are you slowing down your metabolism, uh, you are, uh, you know, blood is pooling in certain areas, you're not able to access your thoughts as, as probably as efficiently as if you were up walking around. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of negative things happen that are biochemical inside, but then there's there are some some physical things that happen. You know, you're, you shorten your uh, you shorten your Achilles, you shorten your hip flexors, uh, your lower back tends to slouch in a lot of people, and and this does affect how you move the rest of the day when you're not sitting. So what I suggest is that people find a way to get up from their desk if they're working or if they're home and out and about. Get up off the sofa, get up, whatever you're doing, go for a walk, go for a climb, move around, do a couple of jumping jacks, <laughs> drop and do 50 push-ups or five or whatever the number is for you. But find ways to move throughout the day, not because you're trying to burn calories, but because you are trying to send these signals to your genes to recraft your body into a balanced uh, mechanism that it's supposed to be. Uh, the next one for suggesting how to how to get a weight loss breakthrough is to accelerate your intermittent fasting efforts. Well, yeah, if you've, if you've hit a plateau and you are frustrated with your current lack of progress, and, and a plateau almost by definition means you've had some progress up to now. You maybe started at 240 and now you're down to uh, 195 and you want to see 175 and it's just not happening. Um, it may be that you do have to create a caloric deficit to encourage your body to burn off more of its stored body fat. One of the dangers of the initial foray into the primal blueprint eating style is people hear, well, this is great. You can eat all the fat you want and you, as long as you cut the carbs and cut the sugar and cut the grains, you can have nuts and you can have uh, you know, bacon all day long and chocolate. And so people kind of are, are attracted to that for good reason. Uh, and the first couple of weeks, it's probably appropriate to not even pay attention to the amount of calories you're taking in, but more importantly, to start to understand how the body needs fat in order to begin to burn fat, uh, how restricting carbohydrate, again, forces the body to look toward its stored body fat or its dietary fat as a source of fuel. Uh, so these are skills that you start to develop early on in the Primal Blueprint. But once you've developed these skills and you start to burn off fat more efficiently and you start to use ketones and you start to unburden the brain of having to have access to glucose every three hours uh, by eating multiple small meals throughout the day, this skill also enables you to skip meals and to not have it affect your mood, to not have it affect your blood sugar levels. Now that you're so good at burning fat, um, your body doesn't care whether the 500 calories that it takes for the next six hours to get from here to there comes from a plate of ribeye or from your butt or thighs or or belly. And that's a beautiful thing so that if you've hit a plateau, one thing that you may want to do is one or two days a week selectively skip a couple of meals with the understanding that you become good at burning fat, you become good at, at utilizing ketones, and now on a day that you – normally would have taken in 2,200, 2,300 calories of food off your plate. If you truly want to burn off some more of your stored body fat, maybe only take in 1,200 calories that day. You know, maybe it's uh, 
a little bit of pro- 40, 50 grams of protein, a um, little bit of fat here and there, uh, very few carbs, and then skip two meals in a row. Uh, don't eat until the next day. That's a great strategy that a lot of people have employed quite effectively for for getting to that that next level. Yeah, I know we've discussed this topic a lot and you've written about it a lot, but it is worth reflecting upon even further that this is not the familiar connect-the-dots step-by-step program like The Biggest Loser where you burn this many calories and restrict your diet to this many and thereby lose fat. What it, what it really is when you're, when you're going primal is you're unlocking the potential to have all these body composition goals happen naturally. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the, the, the intention is for you to ultimately be able to intuitively understand what you need to do and not have to refer back to Mark's podcast or Mark's books or anyone else's, you know, for that matter, Chris Kresser, Rob Wolf, uh, Lauren Cordain, anything that anybody's written. It's ultimately for you to understand how your body works so well that you intuitively not, not only don't have to think about it, but you don't have to feel guilty about it and you don't have to agonize about a bad decision or a you know anything anything that may uh, crop up because you because now you know better. Um, this is look. Everything we teach is really about just making choices that are probably going to serve you better than other choices, and that's ultimately all. I, my whole intention with Mark's Daily Apple and the Primal Blueprint is just sort of describe the ramifications of those choices. That's great, and I think if people were were able to spend time around you and watch your daily habits, they'd probably be quite surprised because the insights would be kind of haphazard. I know people ask you, Mark, what do you eat for breakfast every day? And in actuality, in, in the time I've spent around you, sometimes I see you enjoying these huge meals and, and putting away the food and uh, eating on a regular schedule perhaps, and then other times you literally just forget about or, or pass on a meal because you're busy or you're doing something or coming into a workout or out of a workout, and there doesn't seem to be a consistent pattern in your own personal eating habits. Look, um, there was no pattern in uh, in our ancestors' eating habits, that's for sure. Anybody who thinks that our ancestors ate, got up and ate a breakfast, consciously thought it was the most important meal of the day, uh, and then around noon, when the sun was high in the sky, decided it was time to eat lunch, and then, uh, you know, had a, had a a big family meal before the sun went down. That's you know those are those are uh, artifacts of of industrialization more than anything else, but also artifacts. They're also left over from the uh, agricultural days. So it really is about this again. Back to developing this ability to burn fat. That becomes a very crucial skill when you do skip meals or when you either are are forced to skip meals just because your schedule says so, or you don't have access to something healthy at that time, or you choose to skip meals. And it's just a great sense of freedom to be able to do that and not have it ruin your day. Great. We have a few more, and we're really getting into some juicy stuff now. And I think by the time we we sign off, we're trying to keep things tight and, and progressing. But this is going to be a really wonderful package to go through these checkpoints and, and examine your patterns, examine your lifestyle, and be able to achieve a breakthrough. But you said something about a plateau, which is really interesting, that a plateau implies that you've ascended to the plateau. You've made some progress. So maybe being on a plateau ain't so bad after all. Yeah, it's a point typically where your body has made enough changes that it wants to take a rest and say, look, this is great. This is, you know, this is a weight that may not get me on the cover of, you know, Victoria's Secret catalog or men's health, but it, it's a weight at which 
I get sick less often. I have all the energy I need. I maintain it without having to count calories or without having to, to deprive myself. I probably live longer at this weight than at a, at, at a skinny weight. And, um, you know, with that in mind, I just read a, another study this morning that said that uh, ob- obese people tend to live longer than really, really, really skinny people. So uh, there's no disincentive to being slightly overweight from a perspective of longevity. So a lot of these things add up to the body being the real arbiter of what your ideal body composition is. Now, from there, if you want to drop 10 more pounds or 30 more pounds or whatever, we can do it. It just is going to take a lot more effort. And, and from there, it's, it's going to be really a question of how much do you want it and what's it worth to you and are the costs and the sacrifices you're going to have to make to get to the next, next level going to be worth the effort, the expense, the time, and so on and so forth. Okay, so listeners, if you're hanging with us and you want to do some straight talking here, I think we should also bring up the topic of one's attitude and one's mindset. Well, I obviously it's you you know you want to have a positive attitude that you know you set a goal, you want to achieve that goal. I talk a lot about having a goal but not having an attachment to the outcome. So a lot of my life goals uh, have not been realized. But had I not set those goals, I wouldn't have gotten as far as I've gotten. You know, so I, I may not have have uh, gotten to the point where where I broke the world record in the marathon. You know, which is sort of one of my lofty goals that I set as a runner. But I broke what had been the world record when I was born. Uh, you know, I qualified for for the Olympic trials, and I did a lot of things that that. Had I not set those lofty goals and had a positive attitude, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to achieve. And yet I have no attachment to the outcome. So once I realized that that was as far as it was going to go in my running career, I was fine with it. It was like, okay, that was that was worth doing. That was a positive uh, experience. Um, I probably needed to set the lofty goal in order to to get close enough to it. So that's one of the one of the the, the, the most important aspects of this. The other, which I talk a lot about in the Primal Connection, is this willingness to take responsibility. So, you know, you are who you are partly because of the genes your parents gave you, partly because of the way your your family taught you how to eat, partly because of the schools you went to, the friends you hung out with, uh, the environment that you grew up in, but you're mostly the result of your own choices. And there's a point at which you have to sort of just take responsibility for the choices. Not that they're good or bad, not that they're right or wrong, uh, not that you could have, would have, should have done something else, but just take responsibility and just say, okay, here I am. I am 320 pounds. I have not been the healthiest person. I've, for whatever reason, I am going to take responsibility for where I am right now today. It's not my, I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to say it's my fault, but I'm going to take responsibility. And by taking responsibility, I can respond now to uh, the choices that I make over the, over the rest of my life. So this ability to, 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 to take responsibility is huge. And to, to not be a victim and say, well, it's too late. I'm, I'm, I'm too fat or I'm too sick because my parents just – you know they didn't care, or my genes are so bad because my grandparents, you know, were 
uh, refugees or for what for whatever reason those are those are the sorts of excuses that allow people to remain in what we call in victim and not take action so really taking responsibility for everything you do people say oh well wait a minute mark what if i'm sitting at a stop sign and uh waiting to go and somebody rear ends me from behind that's not my fault well, the truth is it's not your fault, but you should take responsibility for your having put yourself in that place at that time on that day. And all that means is what do I do from here? Okay, it happens. It happened. What do I do to, to move to the next space so that I continue to have a happy, healthy, productive life? That's great. So that brings us to another big one on the list of possible ways that you're going to suffer step-back struggles, and that's sleep. Yeah, I mean, sleep is huge. I, I, I think um, over the past year or two, I've even come to, to put sleep as like the number two item on people's uh, overall uh, health thing right after diet and, and probably before exercise. Sleep is so huge, and so many people assume that they don't need it. Well, we'll sleep when we're dead, or you know, we, uh, I can catch up on the weekend, so I'm going to stay up late. And I'm going to burn the candle at both ends, or I'm going to, uh, you know, work extra hard. Um, I'm going to pull the all-nighter, and I'll be a much better student, or I'll be a much better lawyer for having pulled the all-nighter, or a, a much better, you know, investment banker, or whatever it is. And the reality is, without the body's ability to renew its itself on a daily basis with sleep, you know, we fall into this into this abyss of ill health and weight gain and depression and a de a suppressed immune system. And it may not manifest itself today or tomorrow, but over time, if it's done long enough, uh, it does have some very serious negative consequences. So I highly recommend that one of the first things a person does is to, is to examine the amount of sleep they're getting, the quality of sleep they're getting, and to take whatever steps they can immediately to, to optimize sleep. Yeah, one thing that bugs me on this issue, too, is everyone's looking for a, a magic number that's going to solve all the problems. And you read the headline stories, and they say, Americans need seven to eight hours of sleep a night, and most of them get 5.4. And it's really, it's not as black and white at that, but it might even be more simple. And it, it seems to me that if you're waking up in the morning feeling refreshed and energized without a, needing a buzzing alarm, that's an indication that you're on track. And if you're not, then you got to go problem solve and go back step to the, the previous night. Exactly. It all comes back to this ability, this intuitive sense that you develop over time to understand what's right for your body. And just waking up refreshed is enough to, to intuitively go, okay, I did it right last night. And, you know, hopefully I'll do it again tonight. So if eating primarily on the carbohydrate curve is number one and sleep is number two, maybe, just maybe, uh, sprinting is, is up there at number three or close, huh? Yeah, I mean, f when people write to me or you know, speak to me about whatever plateau they've hit, one of the first things I ask is, are you sprinting? Because sprinting is part of that exercise pyramid in the primal blueprint. And sprinting is so effective at tricking your body into getting to the next stage. It, it revs the metabolism up in many cases by a factor of 30. So, you know, if your resting metabolic rate is one, you're doing 30 times the metabolic activity during a sprint. And it's not about burning calories during the sprint activity. It's about 
the changes in the calories that are burned and the gene signals that are sent to the muscles and the enzyme systems over the next several hours that manifest themselves in that stronger, leaner, fitter body. So if you are a person who's hit a plateau and you're not finding some way to sprint, whether that's running, whether that's on a, on a stationary bike or on the roads outside uh, or an elliptical trainer, even in the pool in some cases, if you're not incorporating sprinting, then, then that's the first thing I'd tell you to do to, uh, to break through that plateau. Uh, that 30 mat, that 30 times normal metabolic function concept is, is really fascinating because you think about how could sprinting be such a big deal? It, it only lasts 15 minutes, and Mark says we're only supposed to do it once every 7 to 10 days. But the impact on your metabolism and on your genetic signaling is phenomenal because it's such an extreme event. We were just talking offline about I was complaining that I was still recovering from a sprint workout that I did a few days ago, uh, 72 hours ago. But that's pretty much what it's all about is sending that amazingly strong signal to your genes that you need to drop some excess body fat because now you're trying to become competent at sprinting. Yeah, and the the other part of that, which is I, I find really attractive, is that as you experienced, if you do the workout hard enough and you sprint well enough, not only uh, should you not do it the next day or the next two days, you can't do it the next two days. You know, you've you've taxed your body enough, uh, not so much that you've courted injury, but that you've taxed the muscles enough that they're just slightly sore enough that they haven't recovered from that. It's going to take them 48 hours or in the case of a 50-year-old like you're closing in on right now, um, maybe 72 hours to recover from. But but it's all good. I mean it gives you the excuse of saying I, I don't have to do anything for the next two days. Maybe I'll do an easy walk, uh, an easy hike or something like that or I'll go do a yoga class or something. But I w- I'm definitely not going to go repeat the sprint workout more than uh, – and at most – I'll say twice a week you can do sprints if you're just starting and you haven't really developed the ability to tap into everything 100%. You could probably do sprints um, you know, twice a week. But if you're really good at it, once a week is pretty much all you have. I mean I used to sprint every uh, Wednesday and now I'm back to full capacity playing ultimate Frisbee. And there's if you've played with us, Brad, and you know how much we sprint during that game – uh, that's two hours of, of um, back and forth, side to side, stop and go, all out sprinting. Um, it's it's Wednesday until I can even pretty much, you know, walk normally again. And I say that you know kind of tongue in cheek because I know it's I'm doing myself a favor. I'm not hurting myself, but um, I don't feel like I it would pay off for me to go to the beach and do more sprints on Wednesday and then go back and play a frisbee on Sunday. So if you do these sprints right. They're very effective at causing your, the adaptations in your body, and they sort of take away the necessity of having to go find other ways to, to do hard workouts during the week. If you just do one, one sprint workout, two full-body routines in the gym, and then move around a lot at, a, at that low level of activity every week, you will be 90% of, of the way to being as fit as you can be. Right. And even if you're not a serious athlete inclined to go into these epic ultimate frisbee battles or like me trying to put a qualifying time up for the master's track meet, it's important to realize that if you neglect this element of your exercise program, it's a significant drop from just the person that goes into the gym every day and does a a calm, easy 20, 30 minutes on the machine. Well, Carrie, my wife, has trained... Every day since I met her, in fact, we, we met in the gym 
26 years ago. We've been married tw- uh, 24 years uh, as of May 5th. Oh, they had gyms back then? <laughs> exactly. Um, and yet, it wasn't until she started sprinting about a year and a half ago that she really got how powerful that is. And Carrie's always been fit. I mean, really, you know, she she looks great. She's got a, a, a figure that most women 30 years younger than, than her would, uh, you know, would, would kill for. But it wasn't until she started sprinting that she said, wow, this is really changing the shape of my butt, my thighs, um, my body fat is, is I'm dropping a little bit more body fat. So now she's like sprinting religiously uh, once a week. In fact, I have to try to sometimes tell her, you know, don't sprint twice a week, just go once a week. Uh, but she's, she's also gotten a couple of her girlfriends into doing it now. So now they all want to sprint all the time. You know, they, <laughs> they get it. <laughs> Uh, so go back and listen to episode 16, where you talked even in more detail about sprinting and how to integrate it, especially if you're a novice. Uh, but today, Mark, this has been a great overview of the the many stumbling blocks possible for uh, stalling with fat reduction goals. And I think lots to think about for the listener. So I appreciate your time. And um, we'll get into a nice mix of interview guests and Q&A in future podcasts. So thank you for listening. I'm your host, Brad Kearns, for the Primal Blueprint podcast with Mark Sisson. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous PrimalCon Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous PrimalCon food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the PrimalCon link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual PrimalCon Oxnard. September 25th through 28th, 2014.